I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of The Washington Post. I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli, and I write for The New York Times and The New Yorker. And I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of The Wall Street Journal. Welcome to Three on the Eye, a podcast from New York about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. Today, we're joined by a guest, Patrick Page, a classical actor of the highest distinction, who is better known to Broadway playgoers as the Green Goblin and Spider-Man, and more recently, Hades in Hades Town. After talking to Patrick, I'm trying <laughs> to do right. his voice. Uh, I can't even, I don't even have like the tones. I can't even, anyway, my chords won't go as deep and you'll hear it in a few minutes as resonant. I know, I know. It's one is I know, I, it's yes. such an, a, a unique sound. After talking with this man, this wonderful actor, the three of us will speak in, in less uh, beautifully modulated tones <laughs> about shows we've seen since our last podcast. But first, we have a little something, a little something, something that's happening uh, on Broadway that you might have heard about. And yes, admittedly, Broadway is not all of theater and theater is not all Broadway, but still it's a pretty big deal that Broadway's back. First one out was Springsteen, then it was Passover, and now it's really starting to pick up speed. Um, and there's a lot of big ticket musicals that are now back in action, Hamilton, Lion King, Wicked, and of course, uh, Hades Town. Well, this, of course, you can't get into a show without a mask and with a vaccination. But as Elizabeth says, there are shows to get into, which uh, leads me to ask the big question. As Lawrence Gay says to Dustin Hoffman in Marathon Man, is it safe and will it last? Can Broadway function in the midst of a pandemic and the absence of tourists? Or will the initial excitement over the reopening give way to half-empty houses? What do you two think? Um, I actually, uh, because of various personal reasons, I've not been back to a Broadway show yet. I'm going next week. So I will uh, leave you to the floor because I believe you have been there. Um, well, I, I could just say that, uh, you know, ticket sales are not doing great for anybody right now. I think it's going to be a very slow return to to health for Broadway and for other theaters. It's There's just a lot of fear out there. Uh, uh, I mean, there, there will be some people who gradually come back, but it's going to be a very slow process, I think. I'm, I'm very curious personally about what some of those big shows that are returning, uh, The Wicked's, those shows are going to do, considering that I don't think tourists are really back yet. I'm very curious as to whether they can muster uh, enough of a local audience to keep going. Uh, and maybe there's a new generation of New Yorkers who have not seen these shows. Well, I think it's revealing, Elizabeth, that the Broadway League has decided not to disclose box office grosses this season, which used to be absolutely routine. Uh, th that says everything that it needs to say. Uh, we don't have tourists. We have a lot of... of anxious locals and polling all over the country shows that people are more reluctant to go to theaters or to any kind of group entertainment. And aside from the question of will the, will the pandemic have a resurgence, I'm really skeptical about the prospects for Broadway over the next few months or even the next couple of months. I just, I don't know what to expect, but I'm, I'm 
I'm pessimistic. I have, I, I have been to off-Broadway shows and they were full. I mean, obviously these are very much smaller houses, but they, they were full and everybody was masked. It's really has not been a problem, but I, I really want to be optimistic about it all. I really want to be optimistic. There's a real excitement right now, but it is tempered by hesitation and caution. Um, it's such a huge unknown. Like, we, we, you know, we, it's really hard to make any prediction at this point. And then we'll look back in two months and think, oh my God, what were we thinking? This was crazy. Uh, I think the past year and a half has completely upended the business of predictions and the business of theater itself. It's, it's really hard to tell. I think there are going to be, I think there are going to be casualties. You know, these shows need a lot of money to keep going. Mm -hmm. They don't have any head of steam. Maybe a couple of them do, you know, have some advance, but the re, you know, they have no cushions to sustain themselves through a drought. If, you know, if October and November, then going into the, you know, usually the slow season happens after Christmas. Uh, if they don't have any uh, uh, momentum, it's going to be very hard for uh, for these giant engines to be fed. And I don't know which ones that means will fall by the wayside, but there are, there are something like 45 shows that have announced themselves in for Broadway itself. Uh, you know, we even have, you know, shows coming back from the dead, for Christ's sakes. Um, Beetlejuice, which closed officially is coming back to another theater. Waitress also has a is is in back in the theater uh, for a limited run. Some of this, I guess, maybe as a result of the federal money that uh, flowed down to uh, productions, commercial productions. There was sixteen billion dollars that was doled out. That's being doled out through the Shuttered Venues Operator Grant Program, and that may have given a lot yeah. of people the the impetus to say, let's. Let's come back into the into the sphere. I don't know for sure into the uh, into operation, but it's been a huge I thing for regional I, companies. I know totally, and also for you know there are there are for Broadway companies. I think I think I read that uh, Hades Town got ten million. Not Hades Town. Um, one of the shows got ten million dollars. Uh, and I think his waitress actually got ten million dollars. That's what I think I, happened. I but honestly don't understand why waitress, which was closed, got ten million dollars. Like, can someone explain to me how that works? I mean, no, this is I a don't. real question. I really don't understand how yeah. that works. I don't. I yeah, it's a good question. I you know this is uh, there are mysteries here uh, about how this all works, but that all it just the pie that's going to be divided up among these shows, these competing shows. Uh, is going to be uh, very difficult. I hope we're all proven wrong. I hope that you know. I hope it's not as bleak as I I'm worried it's going to be. I I hope so too. I hope so too. Um, all right. So let's move on because we have a very exciting guest today. I am so psyched. You may have seen him as the Grinch. You may have seen him as the Green Goblin. You may have seen him as characters who are not even green. Um, it's Patrick Page. Patrick Page has. Probably, yes. We've already talked about that a little bit. We've alluded to it, but he has one of the most superb voices in the biz. Um, and you're about to to hear it, uh, which we're very happy about. Um, so he's now coming back to Hadestown. Not quite, because he's making a movie, but he's coming back. Uh, but in addition to that, 
uh, he also has a thriving career as one of America's leading classical actors, which in New York we may not be as aware of, unfortunately, because he's tended to do that mostly outside of New York. Um, he's an affiliate artist of Washington's Shakespeare Theatre Company, where he performed his own one-man show, All the Devils Are Here, How Shakespeare Invented the Villain, earlier this year, and it was streaming, so very easy to see from the comfort of your living room. Yeah, I think Terry and I both saw Patrick in, in uh, both seen his uh, him play Shakespeare in, in D.C. Yeah. at the Shakespeare Theatre Company, and I even... I think in a story I cited his Iago as one of the greatest Shakespeare performances I've ever seen. He certainly was the defining Iago of my life, uh, among other things. And he has also been remarkably and movingly forthright in public about his struggles with depression, which he has described very eloquently as an insanity that convinces you there will never again be a moment of peace joy or tranquility. All in all, a singular man, an artist, one whom we are privileged to have on this episode of Three on the Isle. Patrick, it's great to see you. Thanks for being here with us. Thank you. So so I know you're you're coming back uh, to Hades Town. Uh, how does it feel to be doing Broadway again? Uh, well, I'm not there yet. I, right. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I watched with great envy and mixed with happiness for all my friends opening up Town again on September 2nd with the great Tom Hewitt playing the role of Hades. Um, and I will come back on November 2nd. Uh, right now I'm shooting a film with uh, Will, Ren- Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds and Octavia Spencer in Boston. And I'll do that until uh, around the third week of October. And then I'll come back into Town. Patrick, what will the process be of plugging you back into the show? Do you, what kind of rehearsing will you do? How does it work? Uh, you know, Terry, I'm somebody who likes to do an enormous amount of work uh, on my own beforehand. I don't like to come in, as some actors like to come into the rehearsal room with a blank slate. And in, in this case, uh, with a role that I've played since 2016 in various incarnations off Broadway, Canada, London, and now on Broadway. Um, I, I've been working on it the whole time. You know, I think it's like uh, it, the, the role never leaves you. So it's, you're, you're always working on it and it's a great, um, it, it's a wonderful opportunity actually to be able to come back to a role um, that you've essentially finished with um, because you always, when you finish a role, you step back and three weeks later, you say, oh, I know how I should have played that moment. Oh my goodness. I know how to do the ending now. And you never get the chance. And so now I have the chance the, the, to answer your question specifically. What I will do is I will listen to the album, the Broadway cast album over and over and over again. So I'll learn my, because the whole thing is recorded on the album. Every word uh, in the show is recorded on the album. So I'll relearn the part that way. I'll relearn the music that way. Um, And then I'll go back and I'll have about a week to sort of relearn the moves. I don't think it will take very long um, because they live in your body somewhere. You know, if you learned to waltz, 
when you were 13 and you waltz again at your 50th wedding anniversary, it's in you somewhere, you know, it may not be a perfect waltz, but muscle memory. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and that happened to me once before, actually, I was uh, playing Scar in the Lion King and I left to play Iago in Washington for three months. And I came back into the Lion King and the stage manager said, would you, would you like to uh, do a put-in rehearsal? I said, no, just, just put me on. I, I know the part. So I'd done three months, and I came back. And it was very strange to walk back into the role after three months without a rehearsal. But then the second time I did it, it was as if I'd never left. So I think it's going to be fine. I think it's going to be fun. And I think, it will, I think I'll see things with fresh eyes and hear things with fresh ears, which will be great fun. I'll probably rehearse, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe uh, go back onto the stage to relearn the, the tricky turntable moves, you know, on Thursday afternoon. And actually Friday, I'm coming to Washington to do a, a reading. Um, so and then I'll go back into the show at the beginning of the week. Can, can you tell us a little bit what the past um, year and a half was like for you? Uh, did you... So you were in the show and then things closed down March 2020. What what went through your mind? Because I remember at the beginning, I remember the Broadway League made that announcement saying, we're going to close and, you know, we'll see you all in June. <laughs> Something like <Yeah>. that. <laughs> they didn't realize yeah, it was going to be. They just didn't say which June. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so what, what was your mind? What were you thinking at the time? Do you remember? Like, what's the... Was everybody on Broadway or in, in the theater at large, like calling each other? Like, what, what was the mood like? Well, I, I had I had studied a bit about pandemics before all of this happened, and I, I actually had a little pandemic kit that I prepared, um, where I had a couple of hundred N95 masks in the closet, wow. and um, and a go bag. At, and a go kit. And um, so it wasn't something that was completely unexpected. Nobody expected this particular coronavirus, but there were other viruses and people have known for a while that a pandemic was a real possibility. I have a wonderful doctor in New York who about two weeks before the actual news came out, said to me that he had gotten a text from the CDC uh, about uh, the coronavirus in the United States and that it was spreading very quickly in China and that it would spread here as well and that I should buy water and I should be ready for everything to shut down and I should buy several weeks of food. And this was uh, this was in late February. Oh, wow. And uh, and so I went to the theater. I didn't know what to make of it. But I said to my partner in the play, Amber Gray, I said, look, I don't know if my doctor's crazy or whatever, but he says this is going to happen. So I'm just telling you. And I told my buddy Reeve Carney and I said, you know, I don't know what to make of it, but I'm going to take my stuff that I need out of my dressing room. You know, the wonderful thing about being one of the wonderful, many wonderful things about being in a Broadway show is you've got this little bit of real estate in midtown of your own you know you've got your dressing room and and actors live out of their dressing rooms you know and so i had things in there that i needed computer things i had 
an edition of Shakespeare from my father, which was uh, one of my dearest possessions, and a couple of other things that I really didn't want to lose. And it's happened to me before that I've gotten locked out of a theater because of the theater strike. And so I knew there's a possibility that I could get this call and just get locked out of the theater. So I said, I'm going to take my stuff home and maybe you should too. And, uh, and went on and the rumors began to say, oh, this thing's coming around. And then, oh, there was a case that an usher got it over at um, Moulin Rouge. And then by golly, one day at noon, we were getting the message, you know, don't come in tonight. Um, the governor's given us um, the message and Broadway shutting down. So uh, did, 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 did anybody in the cast listen to you or they were like, oh, Pierre. There goes Patrick. I think Amber listened to me. I, 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 I've, never, I've never asked her. I think she actually really listens uh-huh. to me. I think she did. Yeah. Anyway, the point is that I was I, I had always had this little plan with my wife that when this happened, when there would be a pandemic, we would leave town and we would go to uh, our in-laws uh, beach house in Avalon, New Jersey. So we did. We packed up and we left the city because the city is not where you want to be in the middle of a pandemic. And we stayed out there. Um, no kidding. Yeah. And we stayed out there uh, from March until uh, as, as long as we could. Um, so I guess until oh, what point did we have to come back into the city? For several months, at least, we stayed out there. Um, and that, that was uh, we were everybody was surprised at how long it, it lasted and is lasting. Um, and I was surprised by that, but I thought, you know, this is an opportunity for me because I've been basically doing eight shows a week for the last 30 years. And I've never had a chance to have time in the evening to do other things. And so for me, it was a chance to, to, to do some other stuff that I've been wanting to do. Um, I'm interested, Patrick, you know, I just saw Town again uh, on September 2nd. I was there the first night that Hadestown uh, came back. And I was actually quite, uh, I had quite a different experience with it than I'd had before. Had nothing to do with Patrick Page being there and not being there. But I wonder if you can talk about this. You know, I felt as if uh, the show played differently without having um, this sort of authoritarian Trump issue hanging over the show, you have a song that so felt like so on the nose during the Trump era, the Why We Build the Wall song, which at the time felt like a response to Trump building a wall. Um, and it made Haiti so uh, so content, so uh, completely a seemingly a Trump uh, figure, which I don't think he really is. Um, do you have a, a, a different feeling coming back to the show now that we don't have that as a sort of overarching theme in our lives? Uh, does does the show feel different to you, even in retrospect? Well, it, it what I will say is that I played the part first when Trump was uh, something of a of a joke. And he was talking about building the wall. But in 2016, in the spring, he had not yet become the nominee of the party. 
And he was something of a joke. And, and I sang the song and the song was what I, what the song is, which is uh, the wall as a powerful metaphor for many things, but not, um, not something literal. Um, I then played it in Canada after Trump was president, but they don't have to watch him on the news every night. And so there was a, there was a different feeling in the audience. I then played it in London at the National Theatre, again, mm. where he's not mm. on uh, the news every night, where Brexit was very much front and centre. Um, and then finally on Broadway. And it was only when I did it on Broadway that it seemed to me that there was a portion of the audience uh, for whom the song was something literal and that then then put the play askew somewhat. Um, mm. Interesting. How does that feel? How does, how does it feel to have an audience feedback to you? How do you know what they're telling you? Well, in this case, I can see every single person in the audience when, <laughs> and, I, and they are, they are who I am singing to. Yeah. So I can literally look in their eyes. Um, and some of them you can feel being very uncomfortable in that moment. Sometimes at the beginning of the song, you see someone chuckle a bit. Some other people break into tears. Um, I, some people, I think rather predictably get up and walk out. Um, wow. And uh, I wanted to always shout after them. I'm not singing about your boy. It's not about that. It's, you know, um, you know, I, I, what, what, what happened actually, and I, 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 I've read about this and it sounds true. So I'm going to, I'm going to repeat it, even though it may be apocryphal, but uh, Trump wasn't that interested in the idea of a wall. It was Steve Bannon who understood the power of metaphor and understood the power of image um, that said, why don't you try this thing out about building a wall? And Trump was like, yeah, I'll try it out. And Trump began to try it out at his rallies. And he learns from his rallies. It's the mob that tells him what to say, not the other way around. And as he began to talk about the wall, they began to go crazy with the idea. And so he went further with the wall and, of course, never had any intention of, of fully building it or of fully funding it or, uh, you know, it was one great big lie. But it was a really incredible image, which is what it is in Town. People mm. ask me in Town, what do they build in Town? Well, they build the wall in Town. That's what they build. Um, it's self-sustaining. And uh, so I, I was always, I, I was a bit sad when people took anything about what to me is a, a beautifully um, non-literal story and made it literal uh, or political. I, I personally find political theater pretty dull. Um, uh, so... Uh, this what interests me about Hades Town is the 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 mythological aspect of it, the archetypal aspect of it. Um, that's that's what I love, and so I 
Yeah, I, I, I look forward to that being less present when I come can, back. Yes. Can, can I ask you? It's really interesting to me that so you've been in various incarnations of the show. Uh, both in New York and in other cities. And w what is it like for an actor when you're with a show and with a part for years, in, in this case, in various places and the show is changing? Like, how does that impact your performance? Like, do you, is that something that you enjoy? This kind of retooling, yeah. this kind of refining and the way that the, the creator's take on it may change or evolve, but your take on it may change as well. Like, how do you work that in? Yeah. Like, is... Yeah, the great thing about, about live theater is the ability to repeat night after night after night and to make it a little better and to get a little closer to whatever that ephemeral goal is. You know, I, can, I, I don't golf myself, but I can understand why people become addicted to golf. <laughs> Because even if you were on the same... 18 holes every day, you can always shave another point off your mm -hmm. game. And that's the way acting is. And, uh, and that's what attracts me to acting in general is that is the idea that I could just get a little bit better at it, a little bit better. And when you are playing the same role over a long period of time, it's, it's a great sort of marker for that because am I, am I getting closer? Am I, Am I more present? Am I clearer? Am I, am I technically doing things better? Am I singing it better? Am I, am I physically embodying the role as well as I can? So the, the, the ability to do it over a period of time, especially in those early runs with short runs, with three months at New York Theater Workshop, two months in... Uh, Edmonton, Alberta, five months in London, and then to have time in between to sort of gestate and 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 bring something more to it. And for me, with this particular role, having the same partner, Amber mm. Gray, throughout that process, yeah, interesting, has been so important to me because um, it, it feels like a real marriage to me, um, and. And and Amber and I, have our, our, I believe our roles have grown into each other. Um, and that, it's very hard for me to imagine doing the show without her. Um, Interesting. So staying fresh for you is not an issue. It can be. It can be. I mean, it, I, I, in some ways it is, it's not an issue. And in other ways it is the issue. In other words... It's like meditation practice. Each time you sit down, you try to bring yourself fully into the moment, to fully find your breath, watch your breath. Right? And same on stage. You try to bring yourself fully into that moment every single night. So that practice is, is the problem, but it is also the, the reason you do it. Right. Uh, uh, Patrick? Patrick, I'm curious, you know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned Scar. Uh, you mentioned Iago. I saw your Iago at uh, Shakespeare Theater. It was an, an amazing Iago. Um, uh, you also played the Green Goblin in Spider-Man. You know, and, and, then, and then Hades. You know, there are these, these 
these dark characters that you've sort of um, specialized in, I would say that, you know, your range, obviously, and in the Heights, you play a totally different kind of character. But you have this kind of, I want to say, joy in these in these characters who sort of, you know, revel in their in their in their diabolical um, gifts, uh, each one of them in a different way. Is that a, you know, what is it about <laughs> you, Patrick, that that directors see that in you, that casting directors do? Is, you know, is it partially a vocal um, talent that they translate as somehow uh, has a kind of... Um, uh, a, a dark quality, or is that in is that in Patrick Page <laughs> and the way he looks at the world? Well, <laughs> I mean, look, I'm very grateful to have any kind of calling card, right? As an actor, to have some kind of calling card means that you will probably be working. So I, I'm, I certainly don't, in any way, resent. Or reject the idea that I, I do play bad guys, and and um, you know, as we were talking about beforehand, I, I have this uh, film that we created during the pandemic of a, a one man show I do of Shakespeare's, mm -hmm. of course, uh, exploration of evil. All the devils are here, in which I explore the uh, uh, the, the problem of evil. Um, and it is something that interests me. I, I will say that in the film I'm doing right now, I play the nicest guy in the world. Do you really? Yes. And there was a time when I, I did more of that. But what, I guess what I'm getting at is that when one begins to be, get cast in a certain way, then that breeds more of that. So when I first came to New York, the very first play I did was The Kentucky Cycle by Robert Schenck. And I had very small parts. It was a seven and a half hour epic. And I think most people would say that I'm the furthest thing from uh, a sort of uh, Appalachian hillbilly uh, uh, that one can imagine. But that's what I played in that in that show. So the next job I got was as a country western bartender <laughs> on All My Children. I guess what I'm saying is whatever it is you have done, that is what you will do. So um, I, I love playing these villains. Um, I love finding what's broken in a human being and how it may have become broken and being a kind of advocate for that person. Um, hopefully when you see me play something, most of the time, you'll you'll find at least a way to understand the character for example i was i played the inquisitor in in the saint joan on broadway and it's maybe the most monstrous character i've ever played he's just inexorable in his desire to burn joan of arc at the stake but he absolutely believed that he was doing the right thing for his church which meant for the good of all people. And I I love finding what motivates people and finding that motivation when the person appears monstrous is an especially fun kind of puzzle. And you so, know? Mm -hmm. I, it's a good I, word. I, I think, and correct me if, if I'm wrong, but I think in, in Cerno de Bergerac, you've played both 
Cyrano and the Guiche, right? And yes. so what, yes. how, like, which one did you play first? I think it was Cyrano. At the same no, time? No, that would be great. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> I'd love to yeah, see yeah. that. Um, no. but yeah, uh, that's the, that's the Jefferson Mays version. Jefferson plays both <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, Right, exactly. Okay, so I'm curious, like, yeah. how does playing these two roles in succession, obviously, um, illuminate the play for you and each part like once you've played one what is it like to play the other i love the guiche i'm a Thank big you. fan I, of the guiche and i think i i i love that question elizabeth thank you um i did the most wonderful production directed by speaking of jefferson mace who was in <laughs> uh gentleman's guide directed by darko Trejnik. darko directed me in Cyrano de bergerac at the old globe in san diego and it was the most beautiful production And I fell in love with the character. And I watched this other character, the Guiche. And when you're playing a character, you, you look at the other man and you wonder about that. And it's wonderful to go and, and have, have, have a crack at the other side of it. When they were doing it at the roundabout, the role of Cyrano was cast. Douglas Hodge was coming in to play Cyrano. And they asked me if I would play the Guiche. And I leapt at the opportunity. Um, because I always thought that it wasn't just a love triangle, Cyrano de Bergerac. It was a love quadrangle. Mm -hmm. And that the Guiche is in love with Roxanne, um, although he is, he has no understanding of how to express it. He thinks he'll do it through demonstrating power and wealth. And he has all kinds of wrong ideas about how he's going to do it. But the, the, the love is very real. And that comes out in the fifth act. And if you, and you, in a way you have to read the play backwards and mm -hmm. understand when he get the Guiche has one great speech at the end where he talks about how he admires Cyrano and how he's gotten to a certain age where he realizes that maybe the trappings of power weren't the way to go and that there was a way to live a genuine life, a life without lies, a life without pretense that Cyrano had done. So in spite of what appeared to be Cyrano's worldly failure, he thought of Cyrano as a success. And I thought, my God, how do you get to that speech? Then everything in the play is about how do you get that man there? How do you trace back the mistakes he made, the choices he made that set him on that wrong track? And so I played it very much as in that way. And it's funny that because it comes around to what you're asking about, you know, is it your voice? Is it your... I remember Jamie Lloyd, who was a wonderful director of that production, getting a bit worried that I wasn't being, for lack of a better word, villainous enough oh. in, re <laughs> in, in rehearsal. And I said, Jamie, here's the, the thing is, you've still got me. You've still got my voice. You've still got my eyes, my cheekbones, everything about me. In other words, you can cast Jack Cassidy as the good guy and he's still Jack Cassidy and you're still going to know. And Columbo's still going to know he's the villain at the end, you know, um, uh, uh, a, a reference after my own heart right there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now I, now I want to see you as Kodai and she loves me. Now that you think of Jack Cassidy, I'd love to see you do uh, like a Jack Cassidy role. Uh, Patrick, I, I am really curious. Uh, you know, you spent a lot of time 
in Spider-Man, which is, you know, talk about notorious, uh, a production that critics were not allowed to review for like seven, eight months. I can't remember how long you did that before we actually took it on ourselves to go in and review it without a, with the only time in my entire history as a, as a critic, I think, that we made the decision, we took that decision away from the production. What was going on for you inside that production, um, without, I, I'm not looking for you to, you know, there might be very uh, painful <laughs> memories here, but also it was, a, yours was a sort of tour de force performance. You sort of held that production together. It was kind of an atlas having it on your shoulders thing going on to some degree with that piece. Um, was it, was that a overall um, a good experience for you? It was overall a good experience for me. Um, it was, Difficult. There were times that it was difficult. Um, it was unprecedented, as you say, in terms of the length of the previews, um, the demands that were made of the of everyone, of the performing company, of the creative team, of uh, 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 the stage crew, of everyone involved. Um, but I loved the people who were involved with it. I know that they believe uh, what, what I knew from the inside that um, nobody knew from the outside was there wasn't a cynical bone in anybody's body. Nobody mm. thought, nobody thought, ah, oh, Spider-Man, we're going to make a million bucks and we're, <laughs> let's just put up the worst piece of crap and it doesn't <laughs> matter because we, they, it was that they were the most idealists, Julie Glenberger, uh, all of them uh, they, uh, trying to create a piece of art really believing that they could create a piece of art out of this, what they perceived to be uh, mythic material. Uh, and I was on board a hundred percent. You know, it's amazing. I mean, it's, I'm really not surprised because I, I think this really came through in the, the Julie Timor version. The first version, I, I really felt, and I remember I watching it and the entire time thinking something, I don't think very often at Broadway shows, I was like, what the hell is happening? And this sense yes. of surprise of like, I have no idea what's going to come back next. Like, what, what were they thinking? Like, this is crazy. And I love feeling like, just like, what? What were they thinking? Like, I just yeah, love it. Yeah. It's really exciting. Yeah, when, when all the women came out oh, with the God. eight that legs. And, great. and and I remember Scott Brown. <laughs> oh, Ariadne, Scott, right? Scott Brown uh, okay. had this great word. And when he wrote about it in New York Magazine, he called it a, a masterpiece. M-E-S-S, <laughs> masterpiece. And I thought, this is so yeah. true. This is exactly what it is. I'll never forget that show. And, I mean, that is Better than almost anything. I'll never well, forget you, that. And, you, and from the from the inside, you would see it was just such a great, great lesson to me in how theater happens, how it doesn't happen, what people, how people's expectations warp the moment. For example, if you had seen that with with no budget downtown, you'd be like, "Oh my God, this is such." peculiar <laughs> you know but it's not it's on broadway it's marvel it's all of, it's all of these things and you know for example julie never ever had the ending of the show that she imagined she had a, an ending that was supposed to be this massive aerial battle between arachne 
and uh, Peter Parker, Spider-Man, which would happen in an enormous spider web, which would be uh, 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 over the entire orchestra section of the theater. But it didn't work. In fact, it could never even be tried because it, 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 the, the two things, the flying mechanism and the web, which was supposed to descend, would not work together. So this this huge coup de théâtre, which was supposed to be the end of the show, just scrapped. And now you've got to come up with another ending. But the entire ending was based on technology and on technology that doesn't work. So it, it was just so fascinating to be a part of and to watch people try to do the right thing and then to watch, you know, it, as I said, there wasn't a cynical bone, even when commercial considerations then took over. Julie was fired. Phil was brought in. And now they're going to try to keep a, a show open. Now they're going to try. So it's it's not cynical in a different way, which mm. is now we're going to try to save these jobs. Now we're going to try to save the jobs of all the IATSE guys in this house. Now we're going to try to save the money of these investors. And, and that wasn't cynical. Um, it, it was it was financially motivated, but it wasn't cynical. So uh, from the inside, one can see all that. From the outside, uh, one can't. So I, I feel like now the next mm -hmm. step is like I really want to see you and Julie and Reeve you reunite a theater for a new audience or La Mama and do it. Yes. Do it there. Do yes. it there. Yes. We'll do like a, a three-person version of it. It's just me and Reeve and TV Carpio and Julie. And, yes, yeah. Patrick, yes. one more thing we've been wanting to talk to you about. As we were listening to you, at least as I was listening to you, talk about how you develop characterizations of villains. The word empathy uh, just was never absent from my mind. You are a man who has suffered from and been extraordinarily candid in public about problems with depression. How does this, I mean, other than the fundamental problem of how do you go on today, how, how does this relate to your work as a man who, who explores personalities of, of the characters you play? Is there a relationship or is it just? Sure, sure. I mean, everybody's, Everybody's just trying to get get through the day, you know. Um, I mean, uh, one tries not to be judgmental, but you know, I I I was as judgmental and am as judgmental, for example, about Donald Trump as anyone. But let's take him as 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 someone who I view as a, a thoroughly loathsome person. Um, and yet, I have to have empathy for him because what is the what is that voice inside of him? that says, I need reinforcement and validation so frequently. Every, I, mean, I need it every 30 or 40 seconds or my, or, or my sense of myself falls apart. Um, and that's what I'm looking for in characters. Of course, I feel it in myself. Uh, the, 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 you know, the, the reason that my depression became a public thing was only because I was being interviewed by Pat Healy uh, while we were doing Cyrano de Bergerac, as a matter of fact. And uh, we got to the end of a, a, a wonderful long interview. We were sitting up in the 
balcony of the Foxwoods Theater, what was called the Foxwoods Theater at that time. Um, and he said, is there anything else you want to say? And it, it came after this terrible thing had happened, which was that uh, a gentleman whom I'd worked with in Spider-Man who worked on the technical crew, I'd opened up the morning papers and found out that he had killed himself. He was a young man. And I thought, I knew he, I knew it was depression that had killed him. And I thought, now, here I am. I've been hiding this thing for as long as I can remember. I go to a doctor at least once a week. I, I, I take a couple of medications every day. And why am I hiding this? Because maybe if he knew that I had this same illness, he might have come to me and he might have said, hey, you know, I think maybe, maybe we have the same illness. Who's your doctor? Or what, what do you take? What do you do about it? And, and, I thought, and, and I thought, well, this is silly. We should start talking to each other. You know, diabetics don't have to keep their illness to themselves. Um, people with heart disease don't have to keep their illness to themselves. What, maybe we should talk about this a little bit. Um, and yes, I mean, you wouldn't wish depression on, on your worst enemy, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so I do think it, it makes you as any kind of suffering makes you other kinds of suffering, which I can't speak to because I haven't gone through, but. I can't speak about depression, that it makes me more empathetic, certainly. It makes me think that person who appears to have their act so together, what, how might they be suffering? Um, and a character like De Guiche, you know, how might, how might he be suffering? Uh, what, what might make a character like the Inquisitor feel that he has to be so inexorable in his quest to burn this young woman at the stake. Um, and I, I just think we need, I do, this is one of the reasons that I wrote the one man play that I wrote. I fear that we're at a, at a particular inflection point in our culture where we very quickly demonize someone to the point of making it impossible for them to work uh, or even show themselves in polite society um, based on very little information frequently. And, and it, I, I wonder in myself, because that, I'm a student of human nature and that makes me a student of my own behavior and responses. I wonder in myself, why does it feel so good to do that? Why does it, mm. why does it feel so good to judge someone? Why does it feel so good to, uh, to have the moral high ground? And, 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 and what I find is that I never really do have it, that I'm, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm just as broken as, as any of the characters that I play finally. Um, and hopefully I don't do terrible things because of it. 
Um, maybe I, I behave differently. Maybe I'm cruel to my wife and then I have to apologize to that. Or maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm just sullen and, 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 and solitary. Maybe I'm, a, I'm anxious. And, but I, I, yeah, thank you for asking. I, I think, I think, I think it does make you more empathetic, I think. Well, thank you for speaking so frankly about that and about everything else. This this has just been a great interview. Uh, we could talk to you for another hour. You were you so kind to spend time with us and to be so forthright. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk with such a great artist about your art and yourself. Um, thank I, you. I, I can't thank you enough. I, I know I speak for all of us. Um, um, thank thanks you. for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Keep, keep doing it. I love the program. Thank you. And now let's wrap things up with our usual round the horn discussion of shows we've seen since our last podcast. Elizabeth, would you get the ball rolling? Yes. So I went to the uh, Cherry Lane Theater and I saw uh, Neil Brennan, Unacceptable. Uh, and Neil Brennan... Uh, he's a comedian and he's one of the uh, co-creators of Chappelle's show. Uh, so very influential uh, comedian, which is, I admit, a scene I'm not like super, super familiar with, but enough to know that he's a big deal. Uh, and the show is, interestingly enough, uh, directed by Derek Dalgaudio, who did uh, The Magician and, you know, Philosopher King, who did uh, In and of Itself, a uh, huge hit also of Broadway. And so what Neil Brennan is trying to do, he's trying to do, it's a hybrid stand-up solo show. And the, the line between the two is very porous. I'm not sure exactly where this one falls, but he's extremely funny uh, and gets a rock star welcome, or at least he did when I saw it, I assume it's him every night. The show has been extended. It's packing people in uh, until through like November 20 something. Um, and it's a wonderful, very appealing show because he's really trying to do something. He's trying to rewrite or he's trying to tweak the rules of the confessional monologue uh, from a stand-up perspective. And it's, it's an interesting, I'm, I'm not sure it always works, but it's a very interesting experiment. Um, and I, I felt a little bit, the way I felt when I saw Oh Hello at the same place, by the way, the Charlene Theater, which seems to be a nice place for comedians to work out their theatrical uh, king. So I, I, I hope this one has a, has a solid life. It's really uh, quite appealing. Uh, I, I just wanted to mention uh, briefly, I went back to uh, The Lion King on its first night on Broadway. Uh, yes, I did. And, you know, I had a choice. I could have gone to Wicked or I could have gone to Chicago or I could have gone to Hamilton. I chose ahead of time. Uh, it was my journalist and my dad's uh, eyes that I think were uh, focused on uh, uh, Lion King. And it was about the circle of life, which I think is one of the great opening numbers in Broadway history. It's so emotional. And I just thought even the metaphor, circle of life, the circle we've all made in the last 17 months really made it fitting to be watching that show again. And it took me, the circles just kept coming at me. I was sitting there last night and 
there was a five-year-old boy sitting behind me, his first show ever. And he was he had a lovely running commentary. He knew the show, but he was telling his dad things, and it was so sweet. And it it dawned oh. on me that you know the first time I saw Lion King was with my five year old daughter too, uh, in in nineteen ninety seven, and so the you know all those things came rushing back to into my head. It was so uh, it all connected with me so powerfully. Um, and it reminded me, you know, that it was the show that I bestowed the gift of th- musical theater on my daughter. You know, I mean, it was where we started and it was it became, you know, over the years, uh, the circle of our lives kept revolving back to theater together uh, and we still do it. Uh, she's 29 now. So it, God. it's you, a wonderful. Did, did you go with her? Did you go with her to the show? <laughs> I did not because my wife had never seen it. Oh, so so she took precedence this time. Even um, better, or just as good. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly right. Um, and so it's really now a family, uh, a, a family thing. Well, I'm curious, actually. What 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 does what did she think about it? Because like, what does the show, which is so part of popular culture at this point, what what mm-hmm. is it like for? first timer like what what is it like because you've seen in the images you've heard the music right. it's so familiar but seeing it yeah, okay, I, what? Uh, you know i was worried i i truly was worried that she was going to be a little uh, bored <laughs> you know a lion king is a little long you know it it, it goes on and on it really does. It, the, you know the images are stunning the narrative doesn't really sustain as you know as a two-hour 45-minute story uh, it really is about a two-hour and 20-minute at most story yeah like oh my it god just goes on again <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> but Val was so struck by the theatricality and the 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 um the 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 sophistication of the vision and the way it kept dazzling the eye. I mean, that's what Tamor does in this piece. Uh, she, you know, and some of them are very rudimentary uh, devices. Mm-hmm. There's a moment where th- we're in the very darkness of, you know, Scar's world in the second act. And suddenly there's a song in which every character is in African colors and, and the, the lights come up and it's like, it's not a, you know, a, it's not machinery. It's just a costume change. And even that has this wonderful, joyful sense of, of, of moment. So, so Val had a great time. I was happy that I could give that to her, uh, in a sense, through my I'm job. Glad. Yeah. Well, as for me, I believe I did go to Passover, but I'm also still reviewing streaming webcasts. They're still in the pipeline. And I'd like to say a couple of words about one that I saw earlier this week. Uh, Westport Country Playhouse in Connecticut is still streaming video of its shows. And the latest one that they have up this week is an archival one-camera video of its 2008 production of John Steinbeck's At Mice and Men, directed by Mark Lawrence. Now, archival videos are inherently limited. They're shot with a single camera, usually at the proscenium. And um, a few companies have put really static archival videos up and they don't work. Um, But this one, I think possibly because the stage isn't quite so wide and because the the action is is pretty well contained in the space, this one worked very well. I mean, you can't, it's not quite right to say camera work if there's only one camera. 
but uh, the zooms, the pans, uh, they showed you everything. The show itself was beautifully, beautifully designed by Michael Gergen. And um, to, to my surprise, uh, because I really think of Mice and Men is a wonderful play. The play is better than the novel is, in my opinion. And this archival video really conveyed what they were doing back in 2008. And it made me think, we want to see if we can, if more companies should be putting this stuff up even after they reopen the public. There's still a need for streaming video. There's still a market for it. I, as I've said here in print, I think it needs to become a permanent part of our American theater ecology. And uh, uh, Mice and Men reminded me of that. And, and hmm. a, a fun fact about that production, I believe it was supposed to be directed by Paul Newman, and he that had to correct. withdraw because uh, of health uh, problems. And I think he died shortly thereafter. But that, yeah, I, I like the yes. idea of uh, Paul Newman directed of Mice and Men. I do think, Terry, it, it's... It, uh, it is an interesting question of whether this will, in what form this will survive. I do think that it's gotten enough into the bloodstream of some companies. They've really got the bug. Uh, I do think that it will, but I think it will be very uh, hopscotchy from company to company. How much they've really absorbed mm -hmm. the uh, the aesthetic is going to be really uh, mm -hmm. uh, very uh, individual. So we'll see, though. Yeah. Well, anyway... Uh, uh, Erica is waving wildly at the screen, telling us it's time for us to move on. No, she's not. She is incredibly patient with us. She's and, just uh, her eyes. She, she smiles. I always know when she's smiling, it means we've gone a long time. But anyway, that's a, that seems like a private message of you know her own, uh, the way she works in the world. So anyway, it's time for this. bring this episode to a close. I'm Peter Marks. I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. And I'm Terry Teachgat. You've been listening to Three on the Isle a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. Our wondrous producer, without whom we would all be struck mute, is Erica Wall. And you can follow us on Twitter at 3OnTheIsle and write to us at 3OnTheIsle at gmail.com and both of them are spelled out. Please, please let us know uh, if there are topics you want us to talk about on future episodes. And don't forget, you have a, an obligation to leave a positive re review or rating on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks for listening. We'll be with you again soon on the app.